few years back, a company told employees that uh, whoever had the most sales that month would win a Toyota. The end of the month, a young woman won, and they blindfolded her, and they walked her out to the parking lot, took off the blindfold, and there in front of her, in the little cardboard box, was a toy Yoda. <laughs> she sued the company for fraudulent misrepresentation. And after years of litigation, they finally reached a settlement. Didn't disclose precisely what the amount was, but her lawyer said it was more than enough to get her any Toyota that she wanted. There was a woman who uh, walked into a ladder on a sidewalk while looking down at her phone and sued the construction company for negligence. You got to wonder who was negligent in that scenario. A woman, after hearing the weather prediction of a sunny day on the local news, dressed lightly. Later that day, she got caught in a storm, contracted the flu, missed four days of work, and forked out $38 on medication. For compensation, she sued for $1,000 for malpractice and due to added stress. She also demanded an apology from the weatherman. The TV station settled out of court and paid the woman $1,000 and the weatherman apologized on air. I saved my favorite for last. At the University of Idaho, a freshman <laughs> suffered fractured vertebrae, abrasions, and severely bruised buttocks when the dormitory window that he was mooning his friends from, from three floors up, shattered and gave way, and he fell to the ground. The young man and his parents sued the school for $940,000 for an unfit, unsafe facility, or it works out to $470,000 per butt cheek. For the University of Idaho, that student was a serious, wait for it, pain in the butt. Okay. <laughs> Needless to say, our trigger-happy lawsuit culture has gotten out of hand. And the same was true for first century Corinth. If you have a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We've been looking at this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth in the first century. And we often think, oh, the church in the first century must have been just wonderful and perfection. Like we think about Acts chapter two, where they're selling their stuff and sharing it with each other. But within the century, the church was already just facing difficulties, infighting, divisions. And, and so we've been looking at these. And the apostle Paul is upset about the fact that the Christian the Corinthian Christians are right in there when it comes to lawsuits, just like the culture. Look at it. 1 Corinthians 6, we'll look at the first eight verses. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? 
how much more than matters pertaining to this life. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers? Happy Thanksgiving. Don't sue each other. You're dismissed. No, okay, let's keep going. Just to kind of paint the picture from 1 Corinthians 1 to 1 Corinthians 6, we, we've recognized that the, Paul's writing to them because he has heard of quarreling, of divisions among this church. It's his reason for writing. And he starts in chapter 1 by talking about these factions that exist. Some follow Paul, some follow Apollo, some follow Cephas. There's these personalities and they're, they're chasing those personalities. They're following them and, and they're creating dividing walls between them. Then we saw last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that they kept someone in the church who should have been removed, who was publicly known for his sin and it was undealt with in the church. And now we see in chapter six, they've taken their issues with each other that should have been dealt with inside the church out. So to talk about chapter five and chapter six together, we see that someone inside should have been moved outside. And now this week we see that issues taken outside should have been dealt with inside. So the way that we're going to look at this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is, is this way. We're going to clarify the nature of the disputes. Then we're going to look at settling internal disputes in a biblical way. What does that look like? And thirdly, we're going to look at living out your identity in Christ in all of life. So first, clarifying the nature of the disputes. It's important that we clarify what we're talking about here. What, what's Paul referring to in First uh, Corinthians 6. What's he talking about? What, he's, what is he not talking about? Well, to start, we see that Paul, Paul actually has civil rather than more criminal matters in view. A number of details in the text point to these being civil rather than criminal cases. They're described as matters pertaining to life, a grievance against one another, a dispute between brothers involving one party wronging and defrauding another in the church. He even refers to these as trivial cases. So, we're not talking about heinous crimes and taking people to court over them. We're talking about trivial cases. In Corinth, such cases involve matters like legal possession, property matters, breach of contract, damages, and fraud. But, but as I read about this uh, litigation culture that existed in, first, in, the, in the city of Corinth in the first century, it seems that there was this material advantage and honor that were the dominant reasons for litigation. Material advantage, monetary gain, and gaining self-notoriety, honor, privilege. 
These cases were often driven by greed as a means of gaining personal advantage. I'm going to step on so-and-so so I can get a leg up. It was just a common practice at that time. Now, I also need to say, to clarify, that Paul is not smearing the courts here. Some of you work in the legal profession. Paul is not making a jab at you here. In fact, he appeals to the courts in the book of Acts himself. There's a time for that. He calls us to honor government in the book of Romans. We are to honor those who lead in our communities and keep us safe. There are many examples of necessary uses of the courts. Criminal cases, especially where safety for oneself and others is concerned. Abusers need to be stopped, for example, for the safety of those being abused and those who might be their victims in the future. Nothing that Paul is saying here is saying anything to the contrary. A parent may have to use the courts to protect their children from someone who is harming them when they should be protecting them. We have many in our church who foster and adopt. When it comes to adoption, court is a necessary part of the process. So much damage has been done when Christians have mistaken enabling and secrecy for forgiveness. So I want to say that kind of as a caveat as we go. Churches have often thought they're being forgiving to wrongdoers when they're actually perpetuating secrecy and they're actually enabling abusers or wrongdoers, criminals, by thinking it's the holy route to keep silent and allow it to continue. And there's no advocating for that whatsoever this morning. I will add as a, as a, as a final clarifier as we dive in that we often though have this false dichotomy of church things and then culture things. Oh, oh, well, this doesn't actually, this issue I have doesn't have anything to do with the church. So I'm just going to take it to the courts because it's not a, it's not a Christian thing. It's a, it's a culture thing. We too often make that false dichotomy as if, as if, as if there, there's total separation of the spiritual things and then just the, the day-to-day real-world things. And so we need to be aware of that. Church leaders need to be aware of that. Congregants need to be aware of that, that, that actually even as something might be being pursued in court, and maybe it should be pursued in court, there's also a, 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 an additional kind of moral issue that might affect the church. There might be division because of this thing that might affect the church. And they're, they're, the courts are concerned with your moral behavior and your, your good standing as a citizen, but they're not as concerned about your soul and your spiritual life. And so all of these things need to go hand in hand with the church walking alongside any division, any issue. Now, when it comes to taking others to court, we we see uh, in the text, we see a few things going on that were extremely detrimental. Um, When they took each other to court, they dehumanized their own family member in the faith. They obscured their witness to outsiders and they belittled the capability of those in the church. Let me explain what I mean. First, they dehumanized their own family members in the faith. It says in verse six, brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own 
brothers. See, the litigation against another ultimately dehumanizes them. I mean, that's the whole point of prosecution and defense. One is saying, no, this person is totally to blame. No, this person is all wrong and this person is all right. Blasting character in order to gain the verdict was and still is common practice in the courts. It's a dehumanizing process. And Paul is saying that it's no way for the family of faith to treat each other. Paul uses the word brother four times in these verses. Paul's making the point that Christians in the church are a family, but they're taking advantage of each other. In Roman society at this time, they would never conceive of taking a family member to court. And so Paul is really intentionally saying, you do this to your brother? You take your brother? You make a charge against a brother? Like He's, he's trying to show how ludicrous this is for the church to do this to one another. It's as if one of my sons has taken something from their brother, right? Inconceivable. And I walk out into my neighborhood and start calling all my neighbors. Hey, I need you to come help me settle this. My boys have an issue here and I just need you all to come and hear about it and help me. That would be ridiculous. My neighborhood would be very concerned about me, about our family. Why? Because it's a family issue. It's a family issue issue. The second piece is that it obscures them taking each other to court, obscured their witness to outsiders. Verse four, so if you have such cases, right, these trivial cases, trying to take advantage of each other, so you're trying to use the legal system, the courts in their day to do it. If you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? You're airing out your dirty laundry in front of those who aren't a part of the household of faith. What are you doing? See, the Christians in Corinth were taking their internal disputes to be settled in the city courts. They were bringing them to those outside the church. The problem here is that the church is meant to be in the world, yes, but they failed to keep worldliness out of the church. Jesus prayed in John 17, I do not ask you to his heavenly father. I do not ask you to take them out of the world. That's his church. That's his followers. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. How can we be a witness if we aren't in the world? How can we be a witness if we separate ourselves completely, shun ourselves completely from the world? We, we have no witness to them. We are to be in the world. But Jesus prays, protect them from the evil one as they engage here. And it appears that the Corinthian church were not being a godly witness. To put it a different way, not only was the boat in the water, but the water was in the boat. I said it a couple of weeks ago, a divided church makes the gospel look untrue. The city of Corinth had factions. Wouldn't you know it? The church in Corinth had factions. Corinth was free sexually. Wouldn't you know it? The church was free sexually. But not only free sexually, they had sexual sin inside the church that even made the outsiders be like, whoa, that's messed up. Corinth was a lawsuit-happy city. Wouldn't you know it? The church in Corinth was also lawsuit-happy. What do you think the city 
thinks of the church. There's nothing different about them at all. That's why in chapter 5, we looked at the fact that discipline is part of discipleship. If we don't have it in our lives, we endanger our own souls and we obscure the witness of the church. This was hurting them. It was hurting their witness. It was hurting the cause of Christ in the city that people might come to know Jesus as they look in at such a counter-cultural group of people. And yet, when they looked in, they saw just the same stuff happening in there as was happening outside. Thirdly, they belittled the capabilities of those inside the church. When they took these legal matters, these trivial cases to the courts in the city to be handled by those outside of the church, what they were doing is they were belittling the capabilities of those in the church. He says this really interesting statement in verse 3. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? Are some of you like, what? Really? He, he writes it like it's a given, right? Don't you know we're going to judge angels? The Corinthian church is supposed to be like, oh yeah, right, yeah, that's right. We're going to do that. Now the word angels here is without the article, which is really interesting, isn't it? But it directs the attention to their quality of character. It, it directs attention to maybe a lack of quality in character. So we might be able to say fallen angels here. We're not sure. But they are by nature the highest class of created beings. And yet what we're told here, what, what Paul is stating here is, the saints will judge them. We don't have a lot on this in Scripture. Daniel chapter 7 speaks to it. Revelation chapter 3 speaks to it. Matthew chapter 19 speaks to it. When Jesus responds to Peter, the disciple, when Peter said in reply to something Jesus had said, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So in a few places, including this text in 1 Corinthians 6, we see that followers of Jesus will be judges with him over all creation. What he's trying to say by bringing in this little nugget about, don't you know you're going to judge angels? Is that if you're going to judge the world with Christ... Is it possible by any stretch of the imagination that with the little disagreements that a couple of people have within your church, you might be able to sort it out? You're going to judge angels. Two guys trying to get monetary advantage from each other. Couldn't you guys have the ability to sort it out with one another? It's what, it's what he's getting at. The Corinthian Christians should have realized they were quite capable of judging the things of this life because they were going to be judging the things after life. And we know in the ways that God gifts his people in his church that in his grace, God has provided wise, godly, and capable individuals in the church who are competent to settle disputes with parties inside the church. So how's that supposed to go? Well, when it comes to settling internal disputes in a biblical way, we might be wondering, what are we supposed to do when someone wrongs us? Are we supposed to do nothing? Are we not supposed to take people to court? What if we, right, they're doing something against us? Well, what we're being told is that it's to be settled in the church. 
Interesting story in Exodus chapter 18. From morning till night, we're told, Moses was surrounded by people, the Israelites, bringing their disputes to him. And he settled them between two people and emphasized God's statutes to them, his commands, his ways. So he would settle disputes between a couple of people. He would settle the dispute and he would try and teach them to be faithful to God, at what faithfulness to God looks like in the midst of their dispute. And he would settle these disputes. But from morning to night, at this point, when we pick it up in Exodus 18, that's just what he's doing day in and day out. And his father-in-law is like, why do you sit alone doing this? It's not good. And you kind of need to hear, listen to your father-in-law, right, from time to time. And so uh, he's saying, saying something that's good. And, and, and Moses actually agrees. And so in verse 24, we read that Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law, good man, and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter, they decided themselves. This this affirms Paul's point. If the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Can it be that there is one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? These are rhetorical questions that are meant to have a resounding yes, of course. In Jesus' own words, he explains it in Matthew 18, where he says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile, and a tax collector. This is great wisdom from Jesus to his church and how to settle disputes. The church in Corinth is full of divisions and Jesus is telling us how to settle those divisions. If someone wrongs you in the church, go to them and see if you can be reconciled, see if forgiveness can be extended. And if it can't, with a couple wise people around you, your life group leaders or accountability people in your life, talk with them about two or three more and bring them and try and have a, have a discussion that leads to reconciliation. And if they still won't listen, bring it to the church, bring it to the pastors, bring it to the elders, bring it to the leadership and that they might lean in. And if they still won't let, listen, we're told, let them be viewed as outsiders, like tax collectors. Gentiles, those outside the fold. And the goal, even in that, is meant to see them not as fellow believers, not as brothers and sisters in Christ, but if they won't reconcile this issue, they are to be outside of the family of faith. We cannot affirm their salvation. We just can't affirm it. And so they're seen as an outsider who needs to be pursued evangelistically. We still love them. We share Christ with them and we hope that they turn their lives over to Christ. But this is what they failed to do in 1 Corinthians 5. They kept treating this one who should have been treated like an outsider, like an insider, like a brother, like a family member, and they did nothing about it. This is where these issues get so warped and complicated. Now, I'd like to apply this to all of us in the room because most of us are like, uh, I haven't gone to court before. Actually, uh, someone sued me when I was in grade 12 
Shortly after grade 12, I, I was served the papers. Uh, I drove my na- this neighbor girl to school. Her mom asked if I would drive her to school. I was like, sure. And being a 17-year-old driver, I got in a car accident. Uh, I, I thought she had her blinker on and she was turning. And, and I, I thought she was turning, but she had her blinker on and she went straight. And I T-boned her pretty good. And I thought when I was served the papers that I was served the papers by the, the other driver but I was served papers by my passenger. I went to a Christian school. Like, what? You didn't even talk to me about this. So lots of us have been sued. Lots of us have experienced that. Many of us haven't. What does it look like? What, what, what's supposed to take place? How do we apply this broadly? I want to put it this way. This has everything to do with living out your identity in Christ in all of life. I entitled my sermon, WWJS, Who Would Jesus Sue? Because when we ask the question that way, we're like, what? Like, who would he sue? He wouldn't. But aren't we his followers? To follow Christ, is, not, is that not to become Christ-like? What did Jesus do to those who wronged him? Isaiah 53 tells us that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus didn't demand his rights. He laid them down. But that is the polar opposite of our modern age. I think really of the fallen human heart, human condition, which is if I can't get my rights in the church, I'll get my rights in the courts. My whole life revolves around me getting mine and then some. See, selfishness, pride, and getting one's rights is so prevalent in the church that we can hardly count on people to walk the Matthew 18 process. It's the exception, not the rule, I have found. Look, I'll I'll participate as long as it's serving me. Look, the moment this relationship or this ministry take sacrifice, I'm out. This person offended me, I'm going to go complain about them to others. I left my church because they said this and that and it offended me. Told a lot of people as I went, not the the church, leaders, everyone who would listen other than them as I left. We follow a savior who laid his life down for us and too often we trample on one another to get ahead and call ourselves his disciples. How does that work? See, what seems to be the problem in Corinth is that they had lost sight of their destiny. Not only were they not prepared to suffer wrong, they were actively doing wrong in defrauding each other. They had completely lost sight of who they were in Christ. Paul says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Meaning, if you're taking someone to court 
to get the victory over someone else, to get advantage by putting someone else at disadvantage, is to live as though this world is all there is. And you may win the court of law, but you lose in God's heavenly court. You've already lost, Paul says. You may win temporally, but oh, you lose spiritually. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Jesus gives us really clear instruction about this. In Matthew 5, he says, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. In Luke 17, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Okay, what would possess us to be defrauded rather than defraud? What would possess us to suffer wrong rather than cause it? What could possibly possess us to do such a thing? In Colossians 3, we're told, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Why? As the Lord has forgiven you, so you, almost, so you also must forgive. First Peter 2, again, for to this you have been called. You want to know what the call of Christ is, the call to be a Christian is? For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed. Does that make sense to you? Or have you lost sight of eternity? It's those who think this life is all there is that must settle everything here and now. But it's those who know that eternity awaits and that everything will be settled justly by God who can extend grace. We can absorb the cost when we've been wronged, when we recognize that Jesus, Jesus absorbed the cost of all of our wrongdoing for us. Pointed question. Do you know who you are? Do you know your true identity? A few years ago, there was a mechanic in Maryland who was doing some of that ancestry online, tracing his ancestry, and he discovered that he was the heir to the throne on the Isle of Man. The Isle of Man is a self-governing British 
crown dependency in the Irish Sea between England and Ireland. And this man discovered in his ancestry work that he was the heir to the throne on the Isle of Man. It actually turned into a reality show. Him and his wife and his daughter went over there and he was self-proclaiming himself as the heir to the throne. Let me tell you, the residents of the Isle of Man were not impressed that this uh, American from Maryland was claiming to be their new king. But he had discovered who he really was and went from mechanic to your majesty. (laughs) Do you know who you are? Do you know your true identity? And does it work itself through in all of life? It's a commonly held notion that if there's a hell, there's a special place in it for child molesters. It's kind of a commonly held notion. If there's a hell, there's a special place in it for child molesters. The Larry Nasser case made headlines last year. The doctor who sexually abused more than 150 young female athletes who were a part of USA Gymnastics. Rachel Denholander was the first to come forward and report him. And she was the last to read her impact statement in the court. And what she said to Larry Nasser went viral. She said, among other things, I pray you experience the soul crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God which you need far more than forgiveness from me though I extend that to you as well How could she hold out heaven for a man thought to deserve hell? Because Rachel knows who she is. Rachel knows Jesus. She knows whose she is. So she knows how the story of her life ends, and it's an amazing ending. So she can hold out heaven to a hell-bent sinner who has wronged her severely. She's a hero. Frankly, she's precisely what a Christian is called to be. Why is it so rare? Do you know who you are? Have you forgotten who you are? Do you know whose you are? Brother wrongs brother, sister wrongs sister, brother wrongs sister, sister wrongs brother. I say this to our shame. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? See, how we relate to Jesus should change how we relate to one another. And this happens. 
1 Corinthians 6, what, what, what Paul is calling Christians to happens. It doesn't make the headlines, but it happens more than you know. There were two businessmen in a church who had a dispute over a finance, very similar to what would, would have been the situation in Corinth. Business transaction, one felt ripped off of 20 grand from the other and was taking that man to court. Both of them, part of the same church. An elder got involved, sat with them, tried to bring kind of reconciliation to this, tried to restore the situation. And they were just butting heads, butting heads. The elder got out his checkbook and wrote a check for 20 grand and said, please just stop. Why would he do that? There was a business group that sold a company to another group, both within the same church. Due to some accusations, the buying party refused to make the final payment of the deal. Walked this through with some leadership in the church. But ultimately, for the cause of Christ, in light of all that Jesus had done for them and for the witness of the church, the party selling their business felt like they were owed money, just walked away. Said, fine, just leave it and took a hit of more than $100,000. Why? For the cause of Christ. Because Jesus took the blows for us. We can here take some blows. That we would never stand in the way of the beauty and purity of the church. These scenarios happen all the time. They just don't typically make the headlines. But every time it does happen, it's a picture of the gospel. It's an evidence of a radical encounter with Jesus and models unity to a divided world. Oh, that we might offer that over and over and over again. Oh, that we may take our divisions humbly towards one another. Reconciliation in love that we might continue to be a beacon of light to the communities around us. I just want to simply close by reading Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 8. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, in a world where we look not to the interests of others, but to our own interests, would you, by your grace and empowerment by your spirit, do a complete reversal of that in us? That we, would not only, that we would not look to our own interests, but would look to the interests of others. That we would become servants. That we would lay our lives down. That we would even take some blows sometimes. 
because you took the blows for us. You died for us. Oh, that we would know who we are, whose we are. We will judge angels. Eternity awaits. Oh, Lord, give us the courage, the humility, and the wisdom to sort out our divisions here. In Jesus' name, amen.